Happy Easter. Please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 9. 1 Peter chapter 1, starting at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. This is the word of the Lord. This is such a great day, and I love it when Easter coincides with the arrival of spring. Um, I love it when Easter is in April. You know that Easter can kind of be all over the map from, from March to, to late April, but I love it when Easter is in April and when it happens to coincide with spring. I, I realize as I say that, it's always a bit risky for me to, to declare that spring has arrived since we're in New York. You know, you can never be so sure. But I do see all of the telltale signs. Um, my family and I were in Corning for a few days earlier this week, last week, I guess. And when we came home, we noticed that a bunch of, you know, purple crocuses had sprung from their beds in the ground. Beautiful. Cro Is it crocuses? Cro croci? Croci? I, I, uh, not only that, but there, there's buds on every tree. And it rained, as you know, midweek, and, and the very next day, the, the grass had turned a rich shade of green. So beautiful. Those are definite signs of life, as far as I'm concerned. And they come as a welcome relief to the, the death that is a New York winter. I think that spring is such a perfect parallel to the resurrection of Christ. Life emerging from death. Uh, and also, I think there's also strong parallels to the Christian life. And that really brings me to the, the main question that I want to ask you today. And that is, are you a Christian? Are you a Christian? Very uh, simple question. Maybe no one's ever asked you that directly before, but I'm asking you today, do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you believe in his sinless death and his sacrifice, his sinless life and his sacrificial death? Do you believe what we're celebrating today, his glorious resurrection? I'm asking you today, are you following the Lord? I, I really mean that. Like, are you his disciple? Are you following in the way that he has blazed? Are you living for him? Does your life resemble his does your conduct resemble his? Are, are you living for the Lord Jesus Christ? 
And I really believe, as simple as this question is, there couldn't be any more important question for you to ever answer. Because the answers to these questions have eternal consequences. The passage that Titus read just a few minutes ago is going to help us, I think, answer these questions because it describes a bunch of uh, what you might call signs of life. And I want to mention four, even though there's many others, I think, in this text. This is one of these passages where, you know, the author is just so exuberant. He's so unrestrained that what you have as a result is a paragraph that's just like pregnant with all kinds of details, more details than we could ever do justice to in the time that we have allotted. But um, permit me to draw out just four signs of life, of Christian life, from our text today to help us answer the question, are you, are you a Christian? Am I a Christian? And the first sign of life is praise. You can see this in, in verse 3. The question, I guess, is are you a praising person? Are you a worshiper? Are you someone who is thankful to the Lord and, and quick to express that gratitude to him? Is your knee-jerk reaction to praise the Lord and to give him all of the glory for all of the great things that he has done? I can tell you that the Apostle Paul uh, Peter is a praiser. Peter's a praiser. This is starting to sound like a tongue twister, but uh, you can see this in verse 3. Peter, the author here, bursts forth with this. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's exuberant praise that's bursting forth from his pen. And notice what it is that Peter is thankful for. He's thankful for the fact that he is, and folks in the church that he's writing to are, born again. They're born again. And I wonder if you're familiar with that description. Um, they call us born-again Christians. And many, many people uh, use that term as a term of derision. They mean it sort of mockingly. But it is, in fact, a biblical concept. To be born again really has its origins in what Jesus said to a man named Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Uh, Jesus said this to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a person is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You, he's trying to explain to Nicodemus and to us that it's not enough simply to be born, you know, the natural way, according to the flesh, to just be kind of born into the world. In fact, as uh, Ephesians 2 makes clear, this is a passage I think that Matthias read during the sunrise service. By nature, if you want to talk about what our predicament is just by virtue of being born by nature, by nature, we are objects of wrath. We are destined for the wrath of God because we are spiritually dead. There's no life in us whatsoever. But thanks be to God, that passage goes on to say, he made us alive together with Christ. Do you hear the resurrection language in that passage? It describes our new birth as connected to the resurrection of Christ from the dead. 
That's a, that's a marvelous thing. And so uh, what Jesus is saying and what I'm trying to explain is that we need to be born again, a second time. Because uh, our natural birth actually leaves us spiritually dead. If we're going to ever inherit the kingdom of God, then we need some kind of life after that death. We need to be born again. Now, I hope it goes without saying that we had very little to do with our first birth, you know, our natural birth. Uh, no one ever asked us to be, if we wanted to be born. We had no, no hand in it whatsoever. But what about our rebirth? What about this second birth? Do, what kind of role do we play in this? And I want to... I want to tell you a very unpopular, e even in Christian circles, a very unpopular but biblical truth, which is that if you're a Christian, you had next to nothing to do with being born again. It is God who makes us spiritually alive. Look again at what Peter says in verse 3. It is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who caused us to be born again. He, he's the cause. And uh, theologians, use a, they like to use fancy words. And the fancy word that they use to describe this and the work in salvation is monergism. It, it describes the, the energy, the work that goes into our salvation, but the prefix tells you what their view is. Mono, one, this word means that there, there's one working, there's one actor when it comes to your salvation, and it's not ultimately you. It's God himself. Now, we might ask, what, what was the impulse that led God to, to save us, to, to grant us to be born again? And here again, you know, if you were to ask just the average person, what, what is it? They might even say, yes, God saved me. But if you were to ask, well, what, what was it that, that led God to save you? Um, many people would say, well, I, I'm a good person. He, he saw that I was, I was a good person and that I was responsive to him and so on and so forth. And, and that is not the impulse, if I can use that word, that led God to grant us to be born again. Look at the answer again in verse 3. It's the mercy of God. It's his great mercy, in fact. The, the God we worship is not one who looked upon us in terms of our goodness and our morality. No, the God that we worship is one who looked upon us in our sinfulness, in our total helplessness, in our pitiful condition. And he looked upon us with a heart full of compassion, with, with eyes full of pity, and he showed us great mercy. Gr mercy, you understand what that word means, right? It means that he, he does not deal with us according to what we deserve. If he dealt with us according to what we deserve, we would be facing his wrath. We would be facing his judgment. We would be facing hell. No, he doesn't deal with us according to our sins, but he deals with us in mercy, which means that he, 
there's kind of two things here. He does not give us what we do deserve, judgment and hell. And he does give us, as a gift, as a grace, what we do not deserve, which is forgiveness for our sins and the hope of eternal life. That, that is amazing. Now, if this is indeed true of you today, that you are born again, then one of the clear signs of this new life is that you will be a person who is full to overflowing with thanksgiving and praise to the author of your salvation. When, when you reflect on, on who you were by nature, when you reflect on who you would be if left to yourself and to your own devices, when you reflect on who you are now, not because of anything great that you've done, but because of God's great mercy towards you, well, look, you're not going to be able to help but burst forth in praise, in expressions of thankfulness, and in glory to God. That's a telltale sign of life. And more than that, not just with our words and our singing, in our thoughts, but as Paul says in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, you're not going to be able to help but present your whole body, your whole life, all that you are, all that he has remade you to be, you can't help but present all of that to him as a living sacrifice, as your spiritual act of worship. That's a, that's a true sign of life to be able to say, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he caused us to be born again. But Peter doesn't stop there. And so we won't either. He, uh, he turns to, we're going to turn to a second sign of life, and that is hope. Hope. And you can see this, especially in verses 4 to 5. So I stopped halfway through a phrase. We need to continue because Peter says we've been born again to something. To something. That little word to is a word of destiny. Again, we can, find, we can find, I think, a bit of a parallel with our first birth, our, our natural birth. You, you understand when a baby is born into the world, uh, that is such a, a wonderful thing. After nine months, you're just, uh, you're so ready. It's, it's incredible to be able to hold that baby in your arms, and the thing is so soft and warm and cuddly, and you worry that you're going to kiss the thing's face right off. Truly, there's nothing like that newborn baby stage. But I hope you'll agree with me, that's not ultimately where it's at. Right? That's, that's not what the child has been born for. That's not what the child has been born to, to, to just be kind of in the world, to just make it through that threshold. No, that child's destiny lays out much farther into the future. And so it is with our second birth. You know, the point isn't to just kind of get in, to just enter the Christian life. No, God has caused us to be born again to something much greater. It means that our destiny pushes much further into the future. 
And so we, we would ask, well, what exactly are we destined for? And Peter answers this, it seems to me, a couple of different ways. One of these is in verse 4, where he says, We've been born again to an inheritance. An inheritance. Now, he doesn't tell us exactly what our inheritance consists of. And there's, a, there's some mystery here. You know, much of the details are only going to be ready to be revealed at the last day. And in some ways, this is similar to an inheritance that we might receive from our parents or from our grandparents, if you're, if you're that fortunate. You might have some inkling that you're, you know, you might have some part in their inheritance, but you, you may not know exactly what it consists of until their death, until the reading of the will. There's a lot of discoveries that are made that day. There's a lot of uh, rejoicing when a will, last will and testament is read. Sometimes there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. You know, because some, sometimes you're not included, and sometimes you are included, but it's something that is not desirable at all. You know, like you might inherit your mother-in-law's magazine clippings that date all the way back into the 70s. You know, you, you might get stuck with your parents' timeshare, and you're like, oh, no, why did you do that to me? But, but even the best-case scenario that you inherit jewelry or, or money or whatever in the world it is that you most desire, let's say that you get that from your parents or from your grandparents, the problem with it is that it's something that moth and rust are going to destroy. It's something that thieves might break in and steal. It's not going to be anything that is, is ever going to last and certainly not last forever. Not so, not so with the inheritance that Christians have been born again to. Again, Peter doesn't here tell us exactly what it consists of, but he does tell us its quality. Look again at verse 4. He says it's imperishable, it's undefiled, it's unfading. Notice all the negative prefixes there. Im, un, un. The best way that the apostle knows how to describe this to us is by saying that it is totally not like anything that we have ever known or experienced. It's something truly glorious, and it's something that is going to be truly lasting. And we are told where it is. Do you see that? It says it's being kept for us in heaven. It's being guarded, safely guarded by God himself. And keep looking because it's not just our inheritance that's being kept, but we ourselves are being kept for it. It's not just our inheritance is kept for us, but we are kept for this inheritance. If you're a Christian here today, I hope you can take comfort in this. If you're a Christian here today in the United States or in the Middle East, you, you pick your hostile place. Be encouraged by this fact that by the power of God, your, your faith is being guarded 
securely until such a time as you come into your eternal inheritance. We sing, raised with him to endless life, he will hold me fast till our faith is turned to sight when he comes at last. That, that's our confidence that he is guarding us and he's keeping us until that great day. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, nor has the heart of man ever imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. However, we, do, we are told the very best part, that this inheritance will consist of our full and final salvation. Look at verse 5. That's what's ready to be revealed at the last time. Again, uh, in verse 9, we read that our salvation is our destiny. This is what we've been born to. This is the outcome of our faith, the salvation of our souls. Now, all of this sounds wonderful if you're born again. If not, I expect that you're bored again. I, I, you know, those of us who have, by the grace and by the mercy of God, been made to understand how, how sinful we are, how unworthy we actually are, there you got to understand, there's, there's nothing that is more wonderful than the thought of an eternity with God and with our Savior, Jesus Christ, experiencing the full and final salvation of our souls. There's nothing that beats that. The only problem is that it lies, it's pushed into the future. It lie, our destiny kind of lies way out there and we're in the present so all of a sudden we snap back to reality and we realize that we're going back to work tomorrow and we're going back to school this week and we're doing so in a country in a world that is increasingly hostile towards christians towards the things of the lord and this was certainly true of the churches to whom peter originally wrote uh, this letter they were experiencing horrendous persecution just by virtue of the fact that they had claimed the name of Christ, that they had identified with this risen Savior. So with eyes towards the future, we are called to live right here in the present. And the only way that we can properly do that is with hope. With hope. So this is, this, is what I'm at, this is what I'm getting at this whole time. This is the second sign of life. life. It's hope. So the question obviously is, do you have this hope? And I'm talking about this hope in particular. Is your life, is, is your present reality fueled by this kind of hope? And you might be thinking, well... This isn't really a sign of life because everybody has hope. You know, even unbelievers have hope. And I would say, yeah, but is theirs a living hope? Is theirs a living hope? Because that is, you'll see from the text, that's what we've been born into. A living hope. Verse 3. 
Yes, I understand that all kinds of people are putting their hopes in all kinds of things. But you have to understand that that, their hope is not grounded in anything. Well, really in anything. That hope is not grounded in anything solid. That ho- their hope is essentially dead. You know, the, be- the best non-Christians can do is they say things like this. Uh, well, I, I just hope against hope. I uh, hope against all the odds or, or some such thing like that. And at the end of the day, it's, it's nonsense. I mean, you want to be kind to people, but it's, it doesn't even make sense. It's a, it's a non-starter. And if you, have, if you are an unbeliever that's here today, or, or if you're a person who is dabbling in unbelief, let me just ask you this question. Where are you going to put your hope? You've got to have some kind of hope to make it through this world. This is a brutal, terrible world. What are you hoping in? And please don't answer that by saying something like, oh, you know, like in karma, or in chance, or in the universe, or, you know, positive energy, or whatever, you would just be mentioning non-entities. These are not things. These are are all inert. These, These are all dead. Friend, what you need, what I need, is a, a living hope. We need a hope that's grounded in something real, something powerful. We need hope that's grounded in something eternal. Excuse me. We need hope that's grounded in someone powerful, someone eternal. What, what makes our hope living? What grounds our hope? What gives it substance? What gives it certainty? Let's read the rest of the verse, verse 3. This living hope is grounded in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Friends, we celebrate Easter, not just because it's on the church calendar. We celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead because it is the very foundation of our faith. It's the grounding of our hope. Paul puts it this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 17 and following. This is a, a passage that Glenn read at the beginning of the service. And Paul says this, he, he argues this way, if Christ has not been raised from the dead, then our faith is futile. It's, it's useless. It's, it's nothing. It's dead. And here's the worst part, we're still in our sins. If Christ has not been raised, get this, if we have hope in him for this life only, well, then we of all people, are most to be pitied. That's pathetic. If Christ has not been raised from the dead. How, How pathetic would it be to have faith in something or someone that is not even in existence? But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. And this erases instantly the hypothetical And that brings us swiftly into the realm of the certain. 
Because Jesus is alive, that means our hope is fully alive. It can be rooted and grounded in eternal realities. Since Jesus is alive, my faith is not futile. On the contrary, it can be totally fruitful. It's since Jesus is no longer in the grave, death no longer has any kind of grip on me. It has no claim on me. I, I have now no fear of death. Death is not my final destiny. Rather, there is laid up for me a crown of glory. What, I, what my destiny is now is an eternal inheritance. Jesus Christ has been raised, and he's been raised for my justification, which means that I'm not still in my sins. I've been saved by him. I've been forgiven of my sins. And one day, one glorious day, I will receive the outcome of my faith. I will be saved by him finally and fully. And best of all, on that day, Jesus Christ himself will be revealed. I shall see him. We, we shall see him. The, the one whom our soul loves, we will get to gaze upon. And we will get to be with him forever and ever. Hallelujah. And that brings us to a, a third sign of life. I'm looking for a little sign, sign of life in here. <laughs> the third sign of life from this passage is joy. Joy. Look at verses 6 and 7. So this discussion of our, our living hope, our eternal inheritance, our future full salvation... That leads Peter to say in verse 6, in this, in all of these glorious realities that we've been talking about, in this we rejoice. We rejoice. And as verse 8 says, these realities lead us to rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. This, this ought to be the result of all of these things. It, if this is truly your reality, you ought to be filled with a joy. So, so the question is, do you resonate at all with what the Apostle Peter is saying here? Do all of these glorious eternal realities stir your soul? Are you filled with that joy inexpressible? I, and inexpressible doesn't mean like you never express it. It means that you you could never fully express it, try as you do. You can never really reach the bottom of how joyful that you are because of all that God has done for you in Christ and all that is in store for you in glory. That's a pretty good sign of life, I think, because as I suggested earlier, if you're not born again, then none of these things that I've been talking about delight you. you if, you're, if you're apart from Christ, you know, you're, you're more interested in your phone, you, which is perishable and defiled and it's fading away even as we speak. But that's, you know, you get excited about that kind of stuff. True believers rejoice in these things. We have a joy that springs from this living hope. 
We've got a joy, 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 joy way down deep in our hearts. And it, it's, it's, it's really kind of like a, a very deep, still pool that doesn't ebb or flow depending on our circumstances. This is what sets joy apart from happiness. Happen, happiness, as someone has said, really depends on our happenings, our circumstances. And so our happiness can rise and fall. But joy, joy is a steady disposition of the soul that, that withstands all of those ebbs and flows of circumstance. For example, let me just give you one. We can be certain that a, a Christian man who is unjustly held in prison at the hands of wicked men can be, even right now, experiencing joy inexpressible on Easter Sunday, even though he's separated from his loved ones. We have, we have that full confidence that a man in that kind of a circumstance would be experiencing the fullness of joy because his Savior is alive, and because his Savior is alive and well, so is he. But I love how realistic Peter is. Look at verse 6. Joy, despite the fact that now, for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. Now, if there was ever a jam-packed sentence, that's it right there. there. There's a whole sermon just in that sentence. And unfortunately, we only have time for bullet points. But you ought to go back and meditate on even just that one sentence. Think about these kinds of things when you do. Think about this. First, we're, we're talking about various trials. We're not talking about any one class of trials. You know, in Peter's mind, it's not just the extreme cases of persecution that qualify as suffering. But every trial and every difficulty that we experience in this sinful and cursed and broken world, these are troubles, these are trials, and they count in what Peter's talking about here. And I know that even in our own congregation, you know, there are folks that are going through a, a great variety of trials right now. Some physical, some spiritual, some relational, some economical. And the, Peter's point is that all of these are in view. You know, the, the Lord is merciful. He's compassionate. And he doesn't minimize or maximize any, any class of these sufferings. And neither should we by the way. Secondly, we are grieved by these trials. These trials grieve us. And that might seem like a very basic point, not worth spending any time on, but I really want you to get this because this is an area that Christians, it seems to me, grossly misunderstand. We, we mistakenly think that joy in the midst of our trials means that we need to have like a a stiff upper lip. It means that we always have to be communicating that we are having the hap, hap, happiest Easter imaginable. We, we, we expect that joy requires all, 
all the time to have a smile slapped to our face. But that's not even real. That's fake. You, you understand that scripture doesn't expect you to be fake. No, scripture says that joy can be happening at the same time that we are being grieved. And, and so, friends, and I hope you'll find this totally freeing. You have permission to grieve. In the midst of, in the midst of very hard trials, you have permission to, to weep, even sob. It's not unspiritual. In, in fact, you can't, even if you tried, you can't be holier than Jesus. Jesus, who when he was faced with the, the real trial of the death of his close friend Lazarus, he, he grieved. It says Jesus wept. You, you, we have to understand that grief and joy are not incompatible. There is such a thing, and we sing this phrase actually, there is such a thing as a joyful grief. Third, I told you, I could, I could preach a sermon on this. I'm, I, I'm restricting myself to bullet points here. So go back and think about these things. But third, these various trials are just for a little while. They're just temporary. And then you compare that with what we've been talking about, an eternity of glory What's a few weeks? What's a few months? What's a few years? What's even 80 years? It's not even a blip. And, and don't just compare the, the quantity. Think about the quality. What, what are your present trials compared to an imperishable, undefiled, unfading inheritance? Let's let Paul tell us the results of that little thought experiment in Romans 8, 18. He says, the sufferings of this present time are not even worth comparing to the glory to be revealed in us. Finally, notice that we experience these trials only if necessary. I hope you don't have in the midst of your trial a faulty view of our sovereign God, where you think of him as just kind of a tyrant who, who brings trials into our lives because he's drunk with power and he, he likes to see us squirm. No, we experience trials if necessary. And they are necessary. What are they necessary for? Peter goes on to explain the testing of our faith. The refinement of our faith like gold in fact the analogy breaks down because our faith is far more precious than any gold our faith is is precious and so God is graciously refining it so that our faith can be proven to be the genuine article our trials our, our difficulties are brought into our lives by a loving heavenly father to get us ready for glory. He's getting us ready to be presented to our Savior on the day that he's revealed. 
And now, speaking of Jesus, we've come to our final sign of life, which is love. Love. Look at verses 8 to 9. Here's really the ultimate diagnostic question for you. I've asked you today, are you a Christian? And really, the the best way to get at that answer is with this question. Do you love Jesus? No, I really mean it. Do you love Jesus? I'm not asking, you know, whether you have any kind of problem with Jesus or I'm not asking if you consider Jesus to kind of be a good teacher or a moral example. I'm not even asking you here today, do you believe Jesus rose from the, the grave? I mean, I I hope you do, but that's not a real good diagnostic question because the demons believe that. And I imagine that it makes them shudder. But I'm asking you, do you love Jesus? Is he your your everything? Can, Can you honestly sing the words of that old hymn? You can have all this world, but give me Jesus. Can you, can you honestly say that? that you, there's nothing out there that you want. All you want is him. When you think about heaven, we've been talking about eternal realities and that great day when Jesus is revealed. When you think about heaven, what is it that you're longing for? What, what really do your thoughts always go back to? Is it, is it you know, being reunited with your husband? Getting, you know, finally getting to meet your grandfather who died before you were born? Do you think about a mansion that you heard somewhere that you might be getting? Is, is it more of the same of you kind of living for yourself just with infinite time to do it and seemingly infinite resources? If so, that, that's, that's not good. Here's what is good. Does your view of heaven, your desire for heaven, does it have everything to do with Jesus? With seeing him? With being with him? With being like him? Does it have to do with loving him? With with unsinning heart? I'm asking you, friend, do you love Jesus? You might recall that Peter was asked that himself by the resurrected Jesus. Rob told us a little bit of Peter's story um, just before his song there. And in the song, you'll recall that Peter was one who denied even knowing Jesus. But then after Jesus was raised, he purposely sought out Peter. And he asked him this question. Do you love me? And he asked him that question three times, which it seems like kind of a, a neg. Peter was kind of frustrated by ha- having to repeat himself three times, but Jesus was beautifully matching the three denials that Peter made. 
and gave him three opportunities to reaffirm that he did, in fact, love him. And you got to think, what a, what a precious moment that would have been for Peter to know full forgiveness, to know that there is no now barrier to, to intimacy with his Savior. But think about, just think about um, Peter. You know, Peter got to see the resurrected Christ. He got to hug him. He got to eat fish with him. He got to say that he loved him. He, he, he had all of these wonderful faith-confirming experiences. And I have to imagine that for the rest of his life, you know, he, he probably had Christians come up to him all the time and, and ask, what was it like, Peter? Peter, you're so lucky you got to see him after his resurrection. That, that must have been so amazing. I wish it was me. That, that must be why you have such strong faith, Peter. You, got, you actually got to see Jesus resurrected. But the apostle reassures us in verse 8 that we're actually in a pretty good spot ourselves. As Americans on Easter Sunday, in the year of our Lord, 2023, he says, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him. Yes, it's true. We have not yet seen the resurrected Christ. We have not yet touched the holes in his hands and put our fingers into the holes in his side. But as Jesus indicated to Thomas... That is not to our disadvantage. Jesus said about people like us, blessed are those who have not seen yet believe. Friends, do you believe in him? Are you filled with joy inexpressible? Are you filled with glory at the thought of him? The ultimate question is, do you love this risen savior? This, uh, that song I mentioned a minute ago has a final verse that says this. And when I come to die, and when I come to die, and when I come to die, give me Jesus. You might be thinking, how can you have, if you're going to die, how can you have Jesus? Well, you can have Jesus because Jesus, this Jesus that you can have has defeated death in the grave and your death is not an actual death it's a it's a door that swung wide open into paradise friends if you put your faith and your trust and all of your love in Jesus Christ then I can tell you on the authority of scripture that you have been born again into a living hope a hope that has its eye on that ultimate destiny of a glorious inheritance, of full and final salvation, but above all, eternal fellowship with our God and our resurrected Savior, Jesus Christ. I trust that you are headed there. And uh, I just want to offer, make this offer to you, if, if the Lord has been speaking to you and working in your heart, convicting you of your sin, of your need for him, uh, we'd love to talk that through with you we'd love to show you how you can put all of your faith in christ and pray with you and if that's 
If that's you today, the best thing that you could do is to do business with this, um, this God who has such great mercy. And uh, there'll be some folks here up on this front pew right after the service that would love to pray with you.